0: Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. He calls abortion the spiritual battle of our lives, and he firmly believes that abortion will end when men make it so. Roe v. Wade has been overturned, but this former football star says the fight for life has only reached halftime. He is Benjamin Watson, author of the new book, The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice, published by Tyndale Momentum. You may already be listening or watching and know quite a bit about abortion, but I'm going to guess that you've never seen the subject explored quite from this angle. Watson argues this, quote, ignorance of or disregard for racial justice, especially by some white pro-life evangelicals, has been a hurdle to unifying and expanding the movement, end quote. He's not content to pass legal restrictions or even ban abortion. He describes, quote, a higher, more complete calling to address the factors that drive abortion decisions. And in this book, Watson comes prepared with an array of statistics that may surprise you. Surveys show that 76 percent of abortive mothers would prefer to parent the child under different circumstances. 40% of the women who abort their children attend church regularly. Watson describes a, quote, crucible of susceptibility that helps explain why 40% of women seeking abortion are black. Compared to white women, black women in the United States are four times more likely to have an abortion. Black women are also three times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes. And he explains that black women have been warned that if abortion is restricted or banned, more of them will die in childbirth. In this book, Watson is not afraid to step on toes or tell Christians that they need to step up in the fight for life. He sees hope in the gospel and in the church. He writes this, as a church, we need to become a safe haven, a refuge, a place where the most vulnerable can turn, not just for spiritual help, but for emotional, material and financial support too. Uh, Watson joins me joins me today on Gospel Bound to discuss the role of men in the pro life cause, the relationship between history and agency, and the responsibility of parents to talk to their kids about sex, among other subjects. Ben, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound.
1: Man, it's good to be with you. I'm, I'm excited
0: about this conversation. Thank you. Uh, it's an it's an important one. And it's an important book and. Uh, ben, did you write this book in response to the end of Roe v. Wade? Or did that decision in 2022 alter some of your previous plans to write this book?
1: Uh, Kyle, I had no plans to write this book. Um, <laughs> I think there are a lot <laughs> of other topics that we could talk about that might be a little more, a uh, little easier to discuss. Uh, maybe not as as um, important uh, as this one, because this is very important. But it's one of those topics. And I think the the convergence of. Uh, life as well as, as race in America are, are two topics that bring a lot of emotion and a lot of history and a lot of baggage. Uh, I believe that we have to speak about these things as believers, because, as you mentioned, uh, we do have hope in the gospel. But we also understand uh, the, the fact that people bear God's image and that we have to stand in the gap and that we have to speak about any type of um person that's being uh, taken advantage of or vulnerability, all those sorts of things. We have a mandate to do so. And we see that in scripture when it comes to justice and, and those sorts of things. Uh, b- but the book was was really a um, m- not necessarily a response to Roe being overturned, but more of an encouragement to the pro-life movement. Uh, the many different factions of the pro-life movement, whether it's uh, Catholics or evangelicals or um People who don't even have have a faith. I mean, there are there are atheists for life. I mean, there are all these sorts of people. But people that 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 think that abortion um, is an attack against a human person, that that think that preborn children should be protected. My hope and my goal in writing the book was to encourage them that this is halftime. Um, I, I played a lot of football, and to use a football analogy, uh, when you come in in the locker room and the coaches evaluating what happened in the first half and going over the game plan and seeing what needs to change and encouraging you that you got to go back out there and keep on fighting because the game's not over. It's a response to that because after Roe was overturned there, there seemed to be a a, a bit of, a bit of apathy that set in for some thinking that this is over. And as we know from a political standpoint, but also just from a, um, communal um, and and, and systemic and and the factors are still there. Why women seek abortion? We as pro-lifers have to keep going. And that's why I wrote the
0: book. You know, Ben, the path from football star to pro-life activist is not the most common. (laughs) Uh, Help us us just to know how you got there.
1: How I got here. Um, I always wonder about that, to be honest with you. People ask that question a lot. And it was not a situation when I woke up one morning and said, this is a fight I want to get in. Um, but I will say this. Uh, I was raised by, by two God-fearing, God-loving, um, Bible-believing parents. Um, my mother and father, they're still with us. Uh, they are leaders in their community. My father's a pastor um, in South Carolina. Uh, but they always taught us and demonstrated to us the importance of um, humans and, and of children. And of people that are in different areas of their life, whether uh, they be the preborn, uh, women, men, uh, you know, people who are poor, wealthy—it didn't matter. They they taught us the value of human dignity, and so from a very early age, I remember having a just a worldview that was based on caring about people. Now, I didn't get along with everybody. Um, I spoke poorly of a lot of people and I still do sometimes, but, but that's just this understanding in our household that life, life mattered. And it was, and human life was different than the animal counterparts. And so I think for us, we had our first child in 2009, uh, Grace, She's 14 years old now. And I remember going and doing the 3d 40 ultrasound and we're sitting there and looking at the 3d 40 ultrasound and, my wife says to me when we leave, she said, you know what, one day I would love to, I would love to provide this service for hmm. pregnant women. Now we've since had six children. I'm a pro at reading an ultrasound now. I know everything about <laughs> I, hey, I don't need the doctor in there or anything, like, I know everything about it now. But fast forward about eight years from that point, and we were able to start purchasing ultrasound units and donating them to pregnancy resource centers in areas where I played. So Baltimore, Maryland and New Orleans, Louisiana and um, hometown in South Carolina and, and, and some of the different places where we had lived. We saw that as an opportunity to to step in and, and to provide that service, because we do know that when men and women see the ultrasound image, it changes how they view life in the womb. When you're in the NFL and you do those sorts of things, sometimes I guess it makes headlines. (laughs) And so that kind of got us started. And I did a few articles, had an opportunity to speak at the March for Life. And and currently I work with an organization called Human Coalition and we provide direct services to pregnant women. We also have a uh, a legislation uh, arm, Human Coalition Action. And so this has been a, a, a journey that has really just picked up, I would say, over the last eight years. But it's always been something, along with a bunch of other issues that I like to call issues of uh, of justice or human flourishing that we've been involved with as a family.
0: Now, there's going to be some people, Ben, who they see two men talking here about abortion, and they're just automatically going to dismiss us as a result. So let's talk about what you see as the role of men in the fight for life?
1: 23 and 23, Colin. 23 and 23. What do I mean by that? Well, there's 46 chromosomes in every person. 23 and 23. And so men have a role biologically, no matter what the uh, the motto or the mantra or the prevailing winds of culture will say and tell men. We have a role. Um, so... That's number one. And whenever I have an opportunity to talk to men about this issue, I firmly believe that uh, abortion ends when men say it will end. And and so many women who, within those first 48 hours when they're making a decision, and so many women would say, you mentioned that that 76% stat, and we'll talk about that later, but many of them would say, if I had a relationship with a the father, or or not even a relationship. But the, the father said that I will b- just be there. Not 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 that I can provide everything, not that no. I'm not scared, but but no, we're gonna do this together. It changes her outlook. And so wh- what Satan always tries to do is to disrupt order and disrupt relationships between man and woman. We see it in the garden. We see it in the very beginning. This is not a new ploy, this is what no. he does. In in so many different aspects of our life, it is about disrupting order, disrupting respect between man and woman, um, disrupting um, the 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 complementarianism between men and women, and so abortion is a primary example of, of of that. And so I always tell men, you know, look, we 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 have a voice, we have a role, we're needed, we're necessary. The key is, are we willing? to perhaps stand up against a culture that is telling us that that we aren't necessary. And, and also, I think that part of it is, is us admitting collectively as men that many times we haven't been who we need to be. Now, sometimes a man is not present because of extenuating circumstances. He sure. he may be experiencing his own injustice that removes him. He, he may have something else that's not his fault. He wants to be there. I've I've had teammates who have told me, man, I wanted to be there. And then my girlfriend went and got an abortion and I didn't know. So, mm-hmm. so there are many men who are out here hurting. But I think collectively we have to admit that, you know what, we we haven't served and loved and many times been responsible in the ways that we should. How do we change and direct and 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 make that right instead of continuing to go along the path that we're going?
0: Of, of course, one of the major themes of this book, the interplay we've been talking about already between abortion, race and justice. And I have a feeling that many people who would consider themselves pro-life, pro-life activists, even perhaps students of the movement, especially if they're white, just might not be aware of some of the history that you cover. And I think one of the most fascinating and certainly tragic components of the book is the history behind what you describe about black women as the quote, deep seated desire for bodily autonomy and control over their own future. Why don't you give us just a brief overview? It's quite a significant (laughs) section of the book, but give us just a brief overview for somebody who just doesn't really know what that means when you say that. Yeah.
1: I think if I was going to write this book, my, my truest desire was, to um to, to speak the truth about the issue of abortion, but specifically to hone in on the fact that black women are three to four times more likely than their white counterparts to get abortions and and to, and to give voice to why yeah. because so often in pro-life circles what i've what I've noticed and, and mostly in this doesn't happen as much in, in many black pro-life circles, but it, i I'm in both a lot of different right. pro-life circles. And many times what I hear as a statistic is black women are three to four times more likely. So why do black people vote Democrat or why do, I mean, it always goes somewhere from there, but, right. but no one ever talks about why is that the case? Can, can we guess, can we talk about it? Can we discuss, why is it the case that this subset of women is, is more likely? Do black men and women just like aborting their children more than anybody, any other ethnicity? I I mean, if that's what you believe, then say that. At least that's an answer. Um, But if that's not the case, I think we need to dig a little bit deeper as to why. And so when it comes to, to black women, my goal was really to highlight some of the reasons that they have told me why this issue is important. And you can't, you can't, disconnect or decouple the present from the past. And so what I mean by that is specifically when it comes to to, to black women and, and having autonomy, black people in general, but specifically black women, have been at the bottom of the social caste system in this country for hundreds of years. Um, if you don't believe me, uh, you can do your own research or you can read the book just when it talks about the father of gynecology and the fact that he yeah. was doing experimentation on black enslaved women. Yeah. Um, the fact that black women were brought to this country for breeding purposes during chattel slavery and part of the influx of black women coming was to reproduce so that there will be more of a slave force. Um, fast forward up through the 1900s and even up until now, when we look statistically at at, at poverty at maternal mortality um, and, and so many other social outcomes, Black women, many times, are at the bottom when it comes to wages and how much they are paid for the same job with the same education as male their male counterparts, but specifically their white male counterparts, it is astounding that Black women earn about $0.58 cents on the dollar. And so there are so many issues, and for many Black women, at least many that I talk to even in writing this book who are pro-life, who are against abortion, it's not that they want the right to kill their children. It's that they want the right to have something of their own and to not be forced or prohibited from doing things because culturally in this country that has happened far too often. And I think that when we think about it in that light, it it gives us a little bit more compassion uh, perhaps in in when we, when we hear some of these, uh, you know, quotes from women, specifically even black women, when it talks about your about my body, my choice or whatever it may be, because we understand where they're coming from and why they're saying that many times people respond out of their hurt, not necessarily out of their their conviction. Many times people respond in defense because they have to draw the line so far away because they've been. Um, offended in so many ways personally and also collectively
0: Well just your answer there Ben shows how in the book you, you you do something that I don't see very often you're you're exposing the dynamic interplay between history and agency sometimes you hear people say emphasize history and then history is destiny you, you really can't help it because of what you described there all you can do is empathize but you can't change anything and some people emphasize agency, but they will cut off the history so that they act Mm -hmm. as if there's no context for why people would make certain decisions. Um, I'm wondering how you try to navigate this at a time when it seems like all different sides just want to portray themselves as victims. Hmm. How do we move forward in this? And and that's what I'm saying. You talked about some of the, the legitimate concerns of victims right there. But in the way this culture operates, kind of every side is vying to put itself in that position of victimhood. How do you move us toward godly agency to solving this, you know, this horrible injustice of abortion? Yeah, it's kind of it's
1: kind of crazy. You mentioned victims. I mean, the the folks who are, you know, individual responsibility, something happens to, to one of their champions that they seem is unjust. All of a sudden they're a victim. Exactly. Um, That's exactly he, my point. You know, and and it's the the way I address it is, and the way I believe Scripture shows us is that there are some people who are victims. Like victimhood is not. We have an entire legal system that is based on someone being a victim, and how do we protect them? Right. Uh, th- th- there is nothing inherently wrong. It's not a victim's fault, but we've taken victim and turned it into some sort of pathology hmm. um, specifically I'll be be frank I feel especially as a black man many times people say they'll use the term uh, you know a pathology of victimhood or or they have a spirit of victimhood and I'm thinking well what well, well, many people have been victimized <laughs> sure. and so the, the the issue is not a spirit of victimhood it is seeing where you've been victimized and the victimizer seeing where they victimized you, and then correcting that, and that's what we see right. in the Scripture. That's right. what we see in in James when it talks about, you know, not paying people fair wages. The simple that's what justice. We see from, you're talking about exactly. Yeah. It was, it's justice. That's what we see from from Zacchaeus when he was victimizing uh, people and he repaid them four times. I mean, there, there are numerous examples in the Bible of of victims, and you always see God's heart. Lean towards not that he's against the wealthy or those in power. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's a problem with using it as a, you know to abuse. But you see his heart for those who are victimized and those who are um, oppressed and those who are in in the bottom of society. And so the, the way I talk about it is just simply being frank. That's why it's important that we have a good understanding of history and by and what i mean by history i mean when we started this this interview back i don't necessarily yeah. mean 100 years ago i i mean from today back it's important that we have an understanding of history because then we don't have to use these these you know euphemisms for what we mean we can actually come to the table and say these things have happened and there are some things that we're not going to discover till later and some things are happening right now that we won't know till later. But as much as we can, we want to be a people of restoration and reconciliation and and protection um, and redress for those who have been legitimately victimized.
0: It's almost like uh, in this book, Ben, and I think this is consistent with your, your public profile, Years ago my my wife kept kind of elbowing me saying, You gotta check out this Facebook post from Ben Watson. It's amazing in there. Um, but uh, it's almost like I just don't see many people like this. It's it's almost like you you wander often into the no man's land. <laughs> Different people, they're they're in their trenches, they're taking mm-hmm. their shots, and there you are sort of like walking down in no man's land, and you're you're pointing out the problems all over the place while the bullets are, bullets are flying. And so people have already gotten a taste here of the book of just the way that you try to approach the, the issue from many different perspectives. Um, there, there's lots of these tough, straightforward words in the book. But I do think that maybe the most pointed words in the entire book concern black pastors. Um, obviously, we're talking about not talking about all black pastors here, you've talked about your father as an example in here, yeah. but here's, one of the, here's a quote from the book, you say, some of our most well-known shepherds are leading their flock off a cliff for a bag of silver and a fleeting moment of popularity. Instead of calling out the value of life amid every attack on human dignity, including policing, incarceration, poverty, elder care, voting rights, and abortion, some leaders have drawn a line of distinction. When it comes to the rights of preborn children now as i read that quote i'm just thinking ben about how we've seen this problem all too often in history and i teach often on this subject related to white pastors who never confronted slavery or segregation so the question is not so much about black pastors or white pastors in the civil rights movement but what is the solution overall to this tendency we have to turn a blind eye to the sins of our allies our friends mm.
1: Mm. I think that so often, well, there's a couple things. I think so often when it comes to turning a blind eye to the sins of our allies, we many times attach our worth or our identity to our political um, or social heroes. Yeah. And so, what I mean by that is, um, you know, we'll, we'll do politics. For example, if I'm voting for a specific politician, I will absolve him of all guilt on things that I know are wrong because. My identity is attached with that person and that happens for pastors. It happens for lay people. It happens in different sectors. And I think that that is, is bordering on idolatry at times. And it is something we have to be very, very aware of and, interest, and introspective on because there's a plumb line that we see in scripture. And the plumb line doesn't move to the right or the left, yeah. depending on who's popular, or who's not popular. And we're all held to a certain standard that God has laid out. And so as believers, it's important that we're able to differentiate. I support this person here, but I just don't support him here. Uh, when it comes to the pastors that I'm talking about, I've been, especially after Roe was overturned, yeah. if you can remember, if the audience can remember, there were uh, several uh not just pastors, but a lot of people who came out saying, well, the next step is they're going to take away this right. They're going to take away that yeah. right. And and all those sorts of things, which which we know, as we talked about in the conversation, some of that is a protective mechanism sure. because of historical grievances. Right. I understand right. that. Exactly. But 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 before a pastor, specifically uh, black pastors of large black congregations. to sit in pulpits and. um and not call out snuffing out life specifically when it is impacting our community more specifically yeah. when our tradition has been one of taking people in and people like 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 Fannie Lou Hamer who yeah. stood up for civil rights and for children and yeah. and, and people who you, the list goes on and on uh, our tradition is one of being socially aware but also having deep theological foundations. Right. And you see that going all the way back to to chattel slavery. And so for them to sit there and 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 do that is not helpful for us. But also I believe that the black church is strategically placed to be the conscience of America on this issue, as much as yeah. it's been the conscience of America on so many other issues, Colin. Yeah. Absolutely. When, when you look at the civil rights movement and you look at the march from Selma to Montgomery and they left Brown AME Chapel and you think about all those who were in those movements,
0: mm-hmm.
1: some whose names we don't know, but they were involved with churches and they met in churches and they were ministers and they were um, women who served in the churches and these people of great faith who who, who came to America and said, no, this is not right. We're going to fight for this because there is a spiritual mandate behind it. That's where I believe that the black church, not necessarily the denominations, but also just just black believers have an opportunity here because abortion impacts us so disproportionately. And so my call to to them and there are plenty of pastors right. that are doing this this thing right. I mean, of They're all right. denominations, great yeah. friends, people you've interviewed. Mm-hmm. I, I can name a whole list. Great, great yeah. men I look up to. But then there are some who we must challenge because there are so many that are watching and following them. And and, and this is not, and their stance is not bringing about life. And it's not going to, and it's not going to bring about the the flourishing in our communities that we so desperately need.
0: And using the Bible to justify their anti-life views, which is all sorts of confusion, which is not exclusive to the, to the black church. We've seen that in Western Michigan as well in the reformed church most recently. Um, that, that, it seems like a special kind of, of heinous evil. Um, it is and and it's, and it's offensive. It's offensive to me
1: personally as a believer. Um, but it should offend all believers when the word of God is misconstrued. Um, when it is, when it is used in a way, um, that is not complete. That is not honest. That is not faithful to the text, but used to manipulate, and and, and eventually is really used in order to maintain power yeah. um, or or money.
0: Yeah, yeah, the favor with the allies, and exactly what comes with that. Uh, ben, what what's it what's it feel like to walk through no man's land? Is, is, that, it is, that, is that is that easy? Is that easy for you? <laughs> it feels it feels it feels lonely, and it it um
1: you know sometimes it is funny people say well you know i was in your i was looking at some comments on something that you said and and all the pro life people you know were clapping on one thing but then on the other thing they all hated yeah. you it's like <laughs> how how come like it's so predictable i know exactly what it, you know yeah. i know exactly what's going to happen yeah
0: i'll
1: tell you this um there are several people who are are open and willing to have I don't want to use this word, but I'll use it because I don't have a better one and a more a nuanced um, approach to some of these things. But it doesn't sell. No. And the frustrating part no, is that doesn't. we yes we live in a culture where you have to be wholesale one way or the other, yeah. um, with your ears closed and eyes closed, blindly walking ahead, running ahead in order to make headlines, in order to garner support, in order to raise money, in order to run for office even. I mean, that's just where we are right now. And it's unfortunate because there are a large swath of people who don't feel that way. They just don't have the loudest voices. I have a friend who 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 you know as well, and he always yeah. says that um, the activists always have the loudest voices many times, but they don't represent everybody in between. Yeah. And they don't represent the truth of, the, of whatever movement they speak of. And so it's, it's a lonely place, but there are others out there and there are people like yourself who I, I truly appreciate in what you do, um, podcasting and speaking and writing, because it's encouraging to see someone who's, who's who's open to seeing the, you know, seeing our issues, our current issues through a biblical perspective, not that we have it all right or have it all wrong, but being willing to grapple with those things and not, not falling to the, you know, to, to the to the far left or the far right of progressive conservative, but trying to walk that line.
0: I think the way to put it, Ben, is that solutions don't sell. Um,
1: <laughs> You're right.
0: Yeah, solutions, You're right. solutions don't sell. It's not. I don't think what you and I are advocating for is moderation per se. Yeah. Um, my friend Chris Watkin might call it diagonalization. It's simply a recognition that we need a multifaceted solution. That there's not going to be a solution to the horrible injustice of abortion without some sort of leadership and collaboration across churches, across ethnicities, a holistic approach that that deals with the underlying problems of justice and the fears Um, as well as mobilizing different communities and different ethnicities and bringing Mm -hmm. understanding, but also promoting agency among Mm -hmm. historically victimized communities. It's going to take everything to be able to get there. And so um, I wonder if for people watching this or listening to this, do you you care about solutions? Do you actually care about the problem or do you care about your tribe winning Mm -hmm. on an election night? That's fine if your tribe winning an election night is going to contribute to change and solutions and we have seen some changes that help to get us toward a solution but there's so much further to go. Yeah. On this question for for decades the focus was on overturning Roe. Okay, we did it. Well, there's a long way to go. If we're at halftime, I think that's probably optimistic in some ways ben. Yeah, And I think that for <laughs> a lot fight. of people,
1: yeah, and I think that for for a lot of people um we're what we saw and what we can see is is are those who for them this was a, a political venture yeah. and this was this was not a journey, this was a cause. Yeah. Um that that had a specific endpoint and end goal, and that was overturning Roe. And now that there is not that, you know, goal uh to raise money, to uh to fight for, to argue about they're They're moving on to the next thing that's the next sexy thing,
0: and, and I, so and I don't and, know and, yeah, go ahead.
1: no, I was just going to say and, and and there's nothing wrong with with that because Roe needed to be overturned, right uh, I'd never want to downplay that. I mean right. that, that needed that needed to it was go. a
0: necessary step exactly. in the journey
1: but there's but there's more to be had because the day after Roe was overturned, the relationships, the housing, the health care. The different insecurities, the employment, the, the lies that are prevalent in culture, all those things were still there waiting at the doors of women. The, the chemical abortions that are 50% yeah. now will be approaching 70 or 80% in the next couple of years is, is still there. All those factors were still present, even though Roe was overturned. And yeah. that's what we need to realize.
0: Yeah, I don't know, Ben, if if people understand the basic politics of abortion, which is that when Roe seemed secure, that in many ways benefited the pro-life cause politically, because there was a segment of people who saw that as an unjust decision, but they never had to worry, practically speaking, about the consequences of it being overturned, the sort of chaos that would ensue, the, all the debates that would be new. And vice versa, now that you see Roe overturned, now the pendulum has swung politically to the opposite side. And the pro-choice movement, even after that victory for the pro-life movement, is more ascendant now in elections because, in some ways, it's like a lot of pro-life activists and voters were not prepared for the debate. It was so fixated on a Supreme Court decision, they weren't prepared to to take yeah. it to the streets to talk to people, including a lot of politicians who had their talking points about Roe but clearly did not have a lot of understanding or conviction about abortion itself, or or any understanding about the factors, um, and might not understand the resolve of a fabulously wealthy pro-choice movement um, that is not going to go quietly in this country. Anyway, I got a couple more questions here <laughs> with Ben. We, we, we're we're getting going now. Um, just as we come toward the I mean, end, I, see what you're about,
1: the bill- I mean, you are talking about the I mean, but there's billions of dollars oh. in, in this, and so I yeah. tell you something else that 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 many people weren't prepared for. We weren't prepared for the target that's that's on our back now. Yeah, and and, and I want to I want to legitimize that and say that that is that is a very real feeling a real experience that many people are 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 enduring that are are, are pro-lifers that maybe in different areas of corporate america who yeah. who are are being silenced and yeah. uh, who are being threatened and and that target is growing not just for individuals but for organizations that have any sort of affiliation with um, the life the life issue and the life movement um, they're dealing with some hardships as well
0: well, sometimes just literal targets. I mean, <laughs> for the people that are on the front lines of this, it's a real it's risk, a real risk, uh, a real, real risk to, to body and life, to be standing for life right now. Um, you know, again, Ben, you, you cover so many different things. People will know that from your public, public ministry and your, and your work and as a football commentator and all kinds of different things, a man of many talents and gifts. Um, one of the things you cover in this book is you talk about how to talk to our kids about sex. Um, and you rightly point out, and I, I say this all the time when I'm talking about catechesis, you don't talk to your kids about sex. It's not that they're not going to learn. It's just somebody else, namely the internet that's going to teach them. So I guess part of what I'm asking is, are we supposed to kind of, what do we do? Do we write out a script and you know, <laughs> do we try to bring this up casually? And, and I guess the main question is just be real practical here. What age do you begin for a boy or for a girl?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I could sit here and say that you know I was leading this charge and it was my. Come on, idea you're the expert, about, man. Come yeah, on. Yeah, you know what I'm saying that it was my idea to talk to the kids about sex early. No, that was that came from my wife. She <laughs> urged me. She urged me to talk to my boys and to talk to my girls, even as a dad, to talk to my girls about about you know not just the sex, what it is from a biological standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint, from yeah. a spiritual standpoint, and so. That has served us greatly in our household because we have open conversations. Our kids are 14 down to four, identical twin boys out of four, and they're clueless. I call them Typhoon and Tornado, my two identical twin boys. They, they're they out of control. but um, so They're not in on the conversation, but they might be around the dinner table and hear some things. I'll tell you what. If you're a parent and you're listening, you don't know how to talk to your kids about sex and you want an easy on ramp start reading the book of genesis with them oh
0: yeah oh, oh yes, that's
1: man. something that i remember <laughs> my father doing for us as kids and something that i've tried to do with my kids and and we'll go a chapter every few nights you know, we're not every night like we like to be. But even getting through Genesis 1 through 20, we had a conversation the other day around the table. We were in Genesis uh, 17, the covenant of circumcision.
0: Oh, there it is. That was yep. a
1: very robust conversation, Aww. especially. And then the next one was like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so uh, yeah, I've had those. But, but my point is, as as believers, especially you're 100 percent right. Our children are going to learn about sex. It's either going to be the Internet it's going to be their own sexual desires is going to be um, a friend on a team. Uh, it's going to be a classmate. And depending on what school they go to, it's going to be curriculum right. in their school that's going to be teaching them things that are outside of what we would want to teach our children. And so it's imperative that we not be reactive, but be proactive. And the way we're proactive is by setting the the standards of truth on this issue um, from what the Word of God says, and so that they will be able to identify where something doesn't line up with that. Yeah. But also telling them that, hey, you, you might mess up. Some of the things that 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 prohibit parents, I think, sometimes from engaging in this conversation is that we are scared that our kids are going to ask us the question we don't want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> and And what we forget is that we have received the grace of God And that we can demonstrate to them, I did this, I may have done this, I may have done this right, but my story doesn't have to be your story. And all of our stories are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but we have to be proactive on this.
0: Yeah. Teach them the good so that they can recognize the bad and teach them grace because they will almost certainly fall short as we all have and all do there. Those are good guidelines there. Last question. just want to give you an opportunity here, Ben. Tell us about some ministries or some pro-life activists, and especially working among African-Americans who inspire you. Uh, There's a great
1: friend. uh, She actually wrote the forward to my book. Her name is Sherilyn Holloway. Um, She runs an organization called Pro-Black Pro-Life. She lives in Ohio. Uh, She is a a speaker, mentor. Uh, She runs training for churches, actually. So if you're in a church and you you, you want someone to come even talk about or unpack some of the things I talk about in the book from a um, ethnic as well as abortion standpoint. She does those sorts of things. Um, a, a good friend that I know, you know, Justin Gibney with the yeah, Ann yeah. campaign um, mm-hmm. whole life project. I've been a great supporter of theirs. And he's he's a guy who um, is a is a leader in that in that respect and is able to kind of present this both and um, but biblical justice as well as. Um, addressing social issues on a bunch of different topics. He's, he's somebody, I mean, there are, there are some, Christina Bennett is a friend. um, She works for live action. um, Check her out. But um, you know, I I think there's also this misnomer, this misconception, I should say, among many that, that, that pro-life is, is only um, attached to a certain political group or a certain ethnicity.
0: Yeah.
1: And what I've, seen and, and what I've really loved about, you know, my opportunities and speaking and writing and connecting with so many different pro-life organizations like Stand for Life um, and even Human Coalition that I work mm-hmm. with is that there are people in every ethnic group that's represented in America in different socioeconomic statuses and different denominations who hold this issue as foundational and important. and And no one... Um, faction has a a death grip on what it means to be pro-life. Now, we may vote differently, we may speak about it differently. We may use words like whole life or womb to tomb or pro-life or whatever it may be. If you're Catholic, you know, whatever it is. But there is such complexity in the movement. And so in this post-Roe era, one thing I talk about in the book is we have to have a willingness to... As Frederick Douglass said, unite with anyone to do what's right and no one to do what's wrong. Yeah. And I be like able to it. connect across those lines. That's difficult. That's hard. We're not trained that way as Americans. <laughs> <laughs> but if we want to ser- serve women and we want to save children, um, that's what we need to be about. And what could be better
0: and more important? Um, my guest today on Gospel Bound has been Benjamin Watson. We've been talking about his new book, "The New Fight for Life: Row, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice." It's published by Tyndale Momentum. Ben, my friend, um, thanks again for this conversation. I look forward to the next time we get to talk.
1: Man, thank you. Next time, I hope we can do it in person, man. We got to catch <laughs> up. I'd <laughs> love that.
0: Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter. Head over to tgc.org/gospelbound. Rate and review Gospelbound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember: when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.